Well, again, if you are choosing as a parent to put your child, you may be seated. If you're choosing to uh, put your child into our kids' ministry, you can, you can do that now. You can check them in now. And for what we're calling the little theologians that are hanging out with us in the service, um, if you haven't grabbed a little bulletin for them, you can do that. Uh, I am going to start uh, just, just this time right before I preach uh, reading a short paragraph each week from our um, confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And this morning I wanted to read a selection to you before we jump into the sermon on chapter 1, paragraph 1 of what our confession uh, says about the Holy Scriptures. And, and just keep in mind as I read this, and I'm not going to be expounding on this and give you another sermon, but um, this was um, a statement of faith born in adversity by uh, godly men of particular Baptist local churches that uh, uh, sought to summarize for us key doctrines of Scripture. And so this is, this is what our confession says in paragraph 1 related to the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at various times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterward, for the better, preserving, which is why we have the word now, and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. And so that is chapter 1, paragraph 1 of our confession, and I think it's good for us to just remember um, these elements of, of our faith. And so with that said, would you turn with me to the book of Esther? Esther chapter 4 is where we are, and so over... you know. Er, Spring and over the most of this summer, uh, we've been going through both Ruth and and now Esther. And I pray that as we've been going through it together, that it has served to 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 encourage you to see that that even in in the darkness, even in 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 times where it seems that God is absent, and we're going to talk a lot about this this morning, even when it seems that God is missing or seemingly silent, that He is in fact present and that he is, in fact, working all things together uh, for our good, for the good of his church as he is, uh, is shaping us and molding us and preparing us for an eternity with him. He's preparing us for the day that we will receive glorified bodies, much like uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is bodily uh, resurrected and eternally resurrected. That is our hope. And so this morning, we're looking at Esther chapter 4, and I, I've titled the sermon, Deliverance Will Come, which is taken out of a, a part of chapter 4 of Esther, but it could easily be called Esther's Decision. 
if you will, Esther's decision. But I'm going to read. Um, I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety as I've been doing. I'm going to kind of summarize key aspects afterwards, and then we're going to work through the takeaways that are already included in your worship guide this morning. So, chapter four of Esther, starting with verse one, the Holy Spirit of God uh, inspired and preserved these very words. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Haddock, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Haddock went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that it might show it, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Verse 9, And Haddock went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Haddock and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this word. Thank you for the truthfulness of it. Thank you, Lord, that your spirit inspired it and preserved it, God. Thank you that as we were just reminded by the confession, God, that it is certain and that it is sufficient. And we ask that your spirit would help us to understand it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the confusion and the grief and the turmoil 
that's going on while Ahasuerus and, and Haman had drinks, right? If you remember how our chapter ended last week. And, and again, just think of the, the coldness, think of the, the callousness toward the people, uh, uh, to, toward God's people, toward the Jewish people. But even, even as this edict went out into all the kingdom, think of the coldness and the callousness of Ahasuerus and of Haman as, as this edict went out. And, and the, ch- the, the, the setting of this chapter is significant. Esther and Mordecai, they never meet face to face here in, in this chapter. Right? Every, everything is passed back and forth through a third party or through third parties. Esther, is she's insulated here, right? And she's, she's detached and she's uninformed as it relates to the suffering of her very own people, right? She's living in the world in, in, in a seemingly safe and, and, and lavish life, right? So she, she's kind of an insider, if you will, but in reality, she's, she's being insulated and she's being isolated. And, and Mordecai, though he's more of an, an insider than many of the other Jews living in this sort of exile, this sort of Babylon, he's uh, here in chapter 4 very much an outsider if we compare him to, to Queen Esther, right? And, and again, though he, he was some sort of prominent important person in this kingdom, never perhaps does he feel more Jewish, if you will, and, and, and feel more out of place and, and, and feel and know that he's not home, that he's not living in the covenant promise of God. Never more did, he probably didn't feel that any more than he felt that at the moment that the, the, the edict came about, that, that he read or that he learned of this, this wicked edict. Right? He feels the weightiness of living in, in exile as a Jew. He didn't belong in the kingdom of Ahasuerus. None of the Jewish people belonged in Ahasuerus's kingdom. This edict, it, it, it only served to, to amplify the fact that these Jewish people, that they were sojourners, again, that they were exiles, that they were pilgrims in a in a foreign land, that they were, in fact, wandering outside of God's covenant promise. But, but let's spend some time with Mordecai for a moment, okay, because he, he, he had a clear understanding as it related to, to the meaning of this edict. Right? He knew that, that it meant clearly total annihilation of his people. And, and the grief of that news in this historical narrative, which we need to hold in our minds, right? This is history. This isn't fiction here. The grief of this news, it's real. Think of it this way, right? There's violence and there's certain death that's coming to your family from, from the top down, okay? Violence, death from the top down is coming. It's scheduled. Nobody's hiding it, right? It's, it's, out, it's out in the open. You know, you know the date that it's going to happen, Right? Everyone that you know, everyone that you love is gone in a 24-hour period. And we, we can't even fathom the intensity of that, just waiting for your death, waiting for the day, marking the calendar, knowing that it's coming. Right? So, so Mordecai, he, he grieves, understandably grieves. He, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he 
puts on ashes, which in this culture is a sign of, of, of deep, deep distress and mourning. And he goes up to the very gate of where this, this wicked edict came from, and he makes his distress known to the people there, perhaps to the, some of the very people instrumental in the edict going out. Right? He's, he, he, at this stage of the game, he's not hiding his Jewishness. He's not hiding his displeasure. He's not, he's not covering it at all. He makes himself visible. He makes his emotion, emotions known in the kingdom. Now, he can, he can do that at the gate. He can do that at the gate, but, but he can't come inside the kingdom like that. There seemed to be some law against coming inside the king's gate while mourning. And these, these acts of mourning that we we see in this chapter. Again, the, the sackcloth, the ashes, the tearing of clothes, the weeping, the fasting. Right? In, the old, in the Old Testament, they're usually accompanied by prayer and, and, and by repentance of sorts, by a definitive kind of turning to the Lord. But our text doesn't mention any, any of that. The author of, of Esther doesn't, doesn't say anything about prayer. Again, the, the book of Esther doesn't even mention the name of God, and, and, and I think here in chapter 4, the absence of God, and him be, even being mentioned here, is, is louder than perhaps any other chapter in, in, this, entire, in this entire book. And what the, the author of Esther is communicating, it, it stops at grieving, it stops at grieving, and it doesn't seem to, to go any further. All right, so, so God's not at the forefront, per se. He, he's not obvious here in our text. Right, and, and, and perhaps the author not mentioning God could be to show us just how anemic the Jewish people were spiritually speaking, just how weak they were spiritually they certainly weren't spiritually healthy and willingly living in exile, right? Because again, these were the Jewish people that could have returned back to the covenant promise of God, but they were w- willingly living in exile at this point, Some, most of which were you know, born in, in exile, of course, or all were born in exile. Now, did Mordecai pray to God? Did he pray to the Lord? We don't know. We just gen- we genuinely don't know from from the text here. Right? He certainly acts in this chapter. Right? He's not he's not passive by any stretch of the imagination. He efforts to see things be resolved, but prayer again it's not mentioned anywhere. Right? We also see that the mourning, the grief, it it spread right everywhere. The edict went. There was mourning, there was weeping, there was fasting, there was wailing, there was sackcloth, there was ashes. But again, we don't see prayer mentioned and we don't see any sort of evidence for there being a turning toward the Lord. If we, if we were to think for a moment in the, the book of Jonah, about the prophet Jonah, and, and think about the Ninevites, which he had to go to to proclaim kind of a repent or perish sort of message. Even the Ninevites, when they learned of their coming destruction, they turned to the Lord. Right? Even that people, people that weren't God's people, turned 
to the Lord. It says, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. This is in, in verse 4 and 5 of Jonah chapter 3. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Right? They, they heard Jonah. They heard the message of destruction from God's prophet here, right? Jonah, but they believed God, right? They, they, they knew that God was the one speaking through Jonah, right? The mention of de- destruction. And then, and then and verse 5 goes on. So the people of Nineveh, they believed God. They proclaimed a fast, right? We see a fast here. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Now, this, is, this is a turning to the Lord here. That's a turning to the Lord. And in contrast, the, the Jewish people, upon learning about their coming destruction through the edict, not, not learning of their coming destruction through a man of God, but a wicked king, they fasted in response. They put on sackcloth and ashes. But again, we don't see a turning to God mentioned. And I'm pressing in on this because, again, the absence of God is loud in this book, and it's loud everywhere. It's, it's loud especially in this chapter, and, and, and as we'll see, it isn't because He's absent. Right? So, so boys and girls, we know, and you learn this in your catechisms, right? one, of, one of the catechisms that you learn is, where is God? We ask the question, where is God? And you say, God is everywhere, right? So we know that God, God's not absent, but perhaps, again, the reason the author of Esther excludes the mention of God is to give us a sense of just how disconnected God's people lived as it related to being God's people, meaning there wasn't a, a mindfulness of their dependence on the Lord, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Now, this is, a, again, a critical chapter. It's the, the account of Esther's decision. And in this chapter, we begin to see more clearly just how strategically God has ordered things so that he could preserve his people. So remember, while we don't see God's name mentioned at all in this book or in this kingdom, and while there's no evidence of the Jewish people turning to him for deliverance, his providential hand is guiding all things for his glory. His providential hand is guiding all things for the good of his covenant people. Right? Because the, the preservation, and this is significant for us to grasp. As Christians, it's significant for us to, to internalize because it changes the way that we live, and, and it, 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 it helps us to have confidence even in our assurance of faith. That the preservation of God's covenant people isn't grounded in their faithfulness to Him. Right? So, so God's covenant promise of, of ultimately seeking and saving us in Jesus and, and doing that exact thing isn't contingent on our faithfulness to him. It's contingent, it's grounded in his faithfulness to us and his covenant faithfulness to us. And that should be really, and we'll see this again in a few moments, that should be reassuring to us. Are we just saying about the glory of his name that our salvation really is fixed? grounded in the glory of His name, not in the glory of our name, not in anything that we've done, not in anything that we can do, but in God alone. And God is a, he's a covenant keeper. He doesn't break His covenant. And in God's guiding 
We see Esther not only positioned as queen, but she had even these trusted confidants of sorts inside of this wicked kingdom. Esther had eunuchs that told her of the distress of Mordecai. Again, because remember, she's isolated, okay? She's isolated from what's going on. She could perhaps be the only person in the kingdom at this point that doesn't know what is about to happen. That, that's how isolated she is. But these, she, she finds out about the distress of Mordecai through, through these eunuchs, and, and then she sends Mordecai clothing through the eunuchs. She sends, she, she sends the eunuchs back with some clothes. But not only did she have eunuchs that told her of the distress of Mordecai, she even had a trusted servant of sorts in one of the king's eunuchs, which is interesting to me. Haddock is a new character that we see mentioned in chapter 4, right? who, who knew that Mordecai and Esther were Jewish. He knew that. Now think about that for a moment. He knew that Mordecai and that the queen was Jewish, and he knew of the edict that went out at the hand of King Ahasuerus to wipe out all of the Jewish people. And, and, and they even begin to pass these messages, Mordecai and Esther passed these messages through Haddock and through some other eunuchs as it related to uh, the beginnings of a plan to try to undo this edict or to thwart this edict, right? They, 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 they are now privy to the beginnings of this plan, and the beginnings of this plan included Queen Esther breaking the king's law to show up unsummoned. She had been unsummoned, if you will, for about 30 days. She was, was going to go into the inner court without the king saying, come. And that, to break that law, was punishable by death. And everybody knew it. This is the plan that she passes to Mordecai through these eunuchs inside of this wicked kingdom. God is at work. God is at work, though he seems absent in this historical narrative. And after this back and forth, they, they agree on this plan, right? Esther is initially unwilling because she knows what it's going to cost her, right? And, and, and after this back and forth between her and Mordecai, where if we didn't know the end of the story, this would be an edge-of-your-seat sort of thing going on, we see Esther resign herself with the words, if I perish, I perish, right? Which, which means she has resigned herself to, to death. I'm going to die for doing this but I'm, I, will, I will do it. So, so a few things that, that I think are significant for us to see, right? And th- these are listed as takeaways in your worship guide, but we're going to spend some time fleshing them out that we see in chapter 4 of Esther here. First is embracing the world and its ideologies isolates you from God and His people. Embracing the world and its ideologies isolates you from God and His people. Think again at how isolated Esther is at, at this stage in the game from what actually matters. She's isolated from what matters. I, th- I think when we read this story or when we talk about this story, we quickly go to Esther being the, you know, the hero of the, the story, 
And, and while she does muster up courage after the convincing of Mordecai, we find her, especially in chapter 4, to be emotionally distant and not just physically distant from the suffering of her very people. Right? While, while all the, the Jewish people are marked at, at hearing the news of what's about to happen, their, their grief is marked by the tearing of their clothes. Their grief is marked by sackcloth and, and ashes. Esther, according to our text, is, quote, deeply distressed. There's no sackcloth, there's no ashes, there's no tearing the clothes. Right? In fact, she tries to pour Mordecai, uh, pull Mordecai out of his grief to, to even kind of rush through it or to dampen it or to lessen the grief, if you will, or to make less of a scene by offering new clothes to replace the, the sackcloth and the ashes. Right? Mordecai's causing a, a disturbance, if you will, at the king's gate, and, and Esther is addressing that first and, first and foremost, it seems. And, and remember that Esther knew nothing about this edict. Again, she could have been the, the, the last person to hear of the news as it related to the extermination of the Jewish people. Right? Mordecai had to send her all the evidence uh, as proof of the edict. So Esther, she's isolated, but not only is she isolated, but as we've seen in this story, she really has assimilated into this society, into this kingdom. Her relationship with the king and the relationship with the kingdom is not one that's acceptable. It's not one that we could say is pleasing in the sight of God, right? It's not, it's not a template to follow. Right? The favor that she earns, which is the way the scripture puts it, she's, she's the earner of, of favor, but the, the, way that, the, the favor that she earns in the kingdom is done by, by compromise and by privatizing or ignoring her heritage or distancing herself from the people of God, especially at the counsel of her cousin Mordecai. Now, before we judge her or we judge her too strictly here, we should see the, that we, we do this as well, like, that we have the propensity for this. This isn't a judgment on where Esther is, but a cautionary tale of sorts, right? We have the capacity to grow callous. We have the propensity to grow distant and unfeeling, if you will, toward God and His people, or distant from God, distant, isolated from God's people. And and oftentimes, as a a pastor, I, I see when people are absent, when the people of God are absent from the people of God, it's not because they're spiritually healthy. It's because they're spiritually unhealthy. Habitual absence from God's people, from the gathering, from what we're doing right here, is a mark of spiritual, a lack of spiritual health. It's not a marker of spiritual health. But we see here, again, we see a lack of, and Esther, and not just Esther, but if we're focusing on Esther and where she is and her being isolated and insulated and distant here, we, we, see a, a, we notice that the absence of God, and, and not that he's absent, but that Esther has no acknowledgement of the presence of God. All right, what, and what flows from that is, is a distance from God's people, which is where we find Esther in the story. 
And, and again, this is how it always goes. When we, when we grow cold and callous because of our selfish or sinful wants and desires or actions and pursuits, distance naturally occurs. I, I see this in my own heart and life, right? a cold distance from those that I love, a standoffish, if you will, disposition from those in Christ's body that always follows from a cold, distant heart posture toward the Lord. Right? When, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm cold and callous or distant with God's people, that's following from a coldness and a callousness that I, I've already cultivated or sins of commission or sins of omission, not doing the things that I should do as it relates to my relationship with the Lord. And, and that can be nurtured in us in different ways. For Esther, it became the pursuit perhaps of safety. It became the comfort that she grew accustomed to. It could be that she was being accepted, though in reality she was secretly Jewish. Or perhaps it even rose from a fear of man in her heart. There's, there's no room for fidelity to the Lord when you're driven by any of those things, a love, an, an inordinate love of any of those things. There's, there's no room for fidelity to the Lord when you're driven by fear of man. There's no room for fidelity to the Lord when you're full of compromise. Right? James tells us as, as much. He says, James says in James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself, just by nature, makes himself an enemy of God. It's also nurtured when we don't get what we want. So in one way, it can be nurtured when we're kind of drunk on the things that we possess, if you will. Another way that it can be nurtured is when we're not getting what we want. Like What, what is it that you want? that you aren't getting, right? The, 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 when we have these desires, when we're holding things with a clenched fist, and they could even be noble things in our lives, those things that we even pray for but never seem to receive, unmet expectations in a spouse, or a child, or a friend, or a brother and sister in Christ, or even an elder. It could be health and safety. It could be financial security. When we're, when we're desiring these things in such a way that we're holding them with clenched fists, that they're, they're not submissive to the rule and the reign of Christ in our hearts, right? They become, what, uh, they become ruling desires in our lives, and if we're not getting those ruling desires, we, become, we grow cold, we grow distant, we grow callous, we begin to live demandingly, we begin to live as if we're enti- entitled. Right? And we begin to do things like nurture, even though we may not form this sort of vocabulary around it, we begin to nurture things like envy or we develop or cultivate a coveting spirit. If somebody else has what we think we deserve or what we think God owes us, we get cruel. We, we grow numb or embittered. We grow angry. We grow angry toward God, and we grow distant and even angry toward His people, which is another way of embracing the world and its ideologies. Right? The world tells us that God is your debtor, that God is your servant. 
And again, while we may not verbalize it this way, the bitterness that's often existing in, in our inner person tells us that we believe it functionally. Right? So, so repentance from sins like being drunk on the even good gifts that God gives us and loving gifts more than we love the gift giver or, um, or uh, desiring in, in this ruling sort of way even the good things. Or, or even, or even indulging in things that we shouldn't. Right? All of these are. There's all these different ways that we can embrace the world, that we can embrace the ideologies of the world, that produce, consequentially produce in us again distance from the Lord and distance from His people. And so the way out for us is repentance. Right? Repentance from idolatry, primarily, acknowledgement that we're worshiping a God other than the Lord. That that we desire something more than we desire God who's given Himself wholly to us in Jesus Christ. So repentance is the path to be near God. Repentance is the path to be near God's people again. So it's not good for us to be isolated. It's not good for us to be insulated. Right? Do not, don't love yourself. Don't love your stuff. Don't love other people more than you love God. Secondly, God's people should live as God's people. So the first is embracing the world and its ideologies isolates you from God, isolates you from God's people. Secondly, God's people should live as God's people. And it's connected to the first point a little bit, but in our text we see the Jewish people living, living seemingly secular lives, okay, d- dependent upon themselves. Even the story moves in that direction. Mordecai, he hatches a plan with Esther, and while there's fasting that takes place for Esther's safety or for the success of the plan, perhaps, the author of Esther, again, doesn't give us any sense that the Jewish people are going to the Lord for the success of the plan. The point, is ma- the point isn't made that God is the object of their worship as they fast or as they grieve. And in this day and age where we live in a wealthy Babylon, much like the wealthy Babylon in Esther's day, we can begin to function, even as Christians, as if God's not there. Right? We can be functional atheists, if you will. We can begin to live as if we're not God's people. God has redeemed us. He's called us out of this world. He's called us to live very distinctive lives, to live lives that are set apart, to live lives that are holy and to, to love holiness and to cultivate by the Spirit of God holiness in our lives because of who we are in Christ. Jesus tells us as much in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. He calls us the salt of the earth. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, and certainly saltiness had lost its taste in Babylon in Esther's day. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He says, "You're, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your, they may see your good works and give glory to God your Father who's in heaven. Right? Several sermons could be preached on this passage alone, but just as a passing comment, there is an obvious public preserving illuminating, distinct way that Christians should live that's mindful of God, that 
that magnifies God, that brings glory to God, and that brings other people as a result of that face-to-face with God. And we live in this way. The way that we get to that point is by being mindful of Christ, being mindful that, that He redeemed us with His own precious spilled blood. Being mindful that He rose bodily and eternally rose for our justification. Being mindful that we're forgiven. Being mindful that we're called out by by the Holy Spirit of God in this world. And that should motivate us. That should motivate our repentance of sin. That should motivate our desire for holiness and righteousness. Because a desire to be holy, a desire to be righteous is a desire for God Himself. Jonathan Edwards, perhaps one of the smartest people in American history, at the age of 19, wrote extensively about his love for the holiness of God. And I've been reading a lot in his published diary as of late, and I'm struck by just how consumed he was with being near the Lord, with living distinct before the face of God and having an impact in this world that was a a sort of reconciling impact, one in which he pointed people toward their maker and toward the way to be right with their maker. That's absent here in Babylon and Esther's day, that sort of desire, that sort of passion, that sort of quest, and certainly it's desire... It's missing in the Babylon in which we live in. So do we, do we as a church, because repentance starts in the household of God, do we as a church, do we love holiness? Which again means, do we love God? Do we love God? If, if we say we do, is it evident in our own gospel-fueled holiness? Or are we worldly? Are we worldly? Do we love worldly things? So the people of God should be living as the people of God. Third, God's never absent or distant. It can be difficult to remember as we're going through this book, and it can be difficult to remember in our own walkings with the Lord, but God is never absent. God is never distant. Again, the silence of God and the author of Esther not mentioning God is loud in this chapter, and oftentimes, again, it may seem that God is distant or absent in our lives. Boys and girls, not seeing God doesn't mean that He's not there. Right? doesn't mean that He's not there. He, he always sees us. He's always near us. He's always close to us. He's, he's there when we don't notice it. He's there when we don't realize it. There are time in, times in our lives, though, that God seems far off. Right? We, we live in this time that the psalmist calls a dry and weary land, Psalm 63.1. Spiritually speaking, a dry and weary land. But even in a spiritual desert, will eventually be satisfied by the Lord. Psalm 63, 5 and 6. The Lord is is near us even when things seem colorless in life. He's near us even when we're in the worst moments of our lives. And not only is He present and close, but we belong to Him. We belong to Him body and soul. We belong to Him eternally. Even when we're wandering in Babylon, we belong to Him. And even in those times where we're acting 
as if we don't belong to him, but pursuing sinful fleeting pleasures of Babylon, we belong to him. God, God is never absent. God is never distant. And when we need to be reminded of that very thing, we look to the incarnation, right, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be reminded that God is near. In a few minutes, we're going to look to the Lord's Supper to be reminded that God's near. So God's never absent. God's never distant. And lastly, God is our deliverer, and He always delivers. God is our deliverer, and He always delivers. Now, there is one clue, maybe, that we get as it relates to there being a mindfulness of God in chapter 4, and it's, it's when Mordecai is pushing Esther to, beh- to act on behalf of the Jewish people. He says this to Esther in verse 14, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And if if Esther was to keep silent, relief and deliverance would still come. It It would still come. Now, did Mordecai have the Lord in mind here? I'm not sure, right? But we know that what he said there is absolutely true, right? God positioned Esther in the place that he did so that he could deliver the Jewish people, but he didn't need Esther to complete the plan, right? God didn't need Esther to complete the plan, as Mordecai said, deliverance will rise, right? We know, it will, we know it would rise not because we know the end of the story, but because the Lord is the one who does the delivering, right? It's the Lord that does the delivering. He may have used someone like Esther, or even further back, he may have used someone like Moses to deliver his people, but he didn't need them. He didn't need them. Even consider the character of Esther at this stage in the game. Right? He, didn't, he didn't choose her because she was a worthy candidate to be picked. Right? God doesn't need Esther in the same way that he doesn't need you or me, but he has graciously invited us, not just saved us, but has invited us into his cosmic plan of redemption for his people. Right? He chooses sinners like us to advance his preserving plan. So God used Esther not because he needed to, but really because he wanted to, right, for his own glory. Because while Esther is the character in our story that bravely goes to the king, praise God for that. It's the outworking of God's decree that rescued the Jewish people. And it's the outworking of God's decree in our lives, accomplished by the Father, Son, and Spirit alone, that rescued us, that saved us. All of us are sitting here this morning because of one reason, and it's because our God delivers. Our God is a deliverer, right? That is what He does, right? He delivers us from the penalty of our sin, and He goes all the way to bring us into right relationship with Him. He, he is the one that does all the saving. God alone does all the saving, so God alone gets all the glory, right? And, and because, and I mentioned this earlier, because He's the deliverer, because He alone is the, the deliverer, our being delivered is based on His good and unchanging character. In other words, we can have, we can have true assurance of faith that we really are delivered, 
And so God will deliver. God has delivered. And we can look at the empty tomb of Christ for the proof, for the reminder of that. And in just a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table to ultimately be reminded that God is very present in our lives and that in His kindness, He's close to us through Christ. And the Holy Spirit of God living in us testifies to us as we do things like read His Word, as we do things like sing of the doctrines of Scripture, as we do things like come to the Lord's table in just a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the time that we could spend in it this morning. And God, I pray that You would prevent us from being cold and callous towards You, God. You would prevent us from isolating ourselves from You. You would prevent us from isolating ourselves from Your people, God, that we pray that we would be reminded that, Lord, we are to live distinctive, distinctively Christian lives dependent upon your Spirit. God, that you would remind us that you're never absent and that you're never distant, Lord, even in those times where it feels like we're living in a dry and weary land. And God, I pray that you would in, in, increase our assurance of faith knowing that you alone are the deliverer. And we pray this in Jesus' name.